Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. The Senate Intelligence Committee recently released a long-awaited report, the final volume of its investigation into alleged Russian interference in 2016 and the Trump campaign's potential cooperation or coordination with it, and whether or not Trump or anybody in the Trump campaign is compromised by Russia. After the disappointment of the Mueller report for many people who believe that there was coordination between Trump and Russia, this final Senate report was seen as a validation of many of the theories that Trump and Russia were in cahoots. We got the most detailed report we've ever had on just how deeply engaged the Trump campaign was with that Russian operation in 2016. A thousand page bipartisan report from the Intelligence Committee in the Senate confirming a bunch of findings from the Mueller report, but also containing some alarming new findings. Maybe one of the most stunning was the level of detail of the then campaign manager, Paul Manafort, sharing very specific campaign information with a Russian agent. We never know, we'll never know what the Russians did with that information, but think about that, a campaign manager sharing with a known Russian agent during the middle of a campaign. Uh, And so here you have Paul Manafort, the chairman, secretly meeting with a Russian intelligence agent, providing that agent internal campaign polling data while that agent's country, Russia, is engaged in a social media campaign to denigrate Hillary Clinton and help elect Donald Trump. That is really damning stuff. Of course, you recall learning from Stone, the Access Hollywood tape would be coming out. That's before it actually publishes. And that Stone wanted the Podesta stuff to balance the news cycle. According to Corsi, Stone also told him to have WikiLeaks drop the Podesta emails immediately. In other words, the whole thing is what it looked like all along. I myself have a different view. And so uh, to discuss that, we're going to have now a dialogue about this. I'm joined now by Matatia Schwartz. He is a contributing writer for The New York Times Magazine, has profiled several figures uh, involved in the Trump-Russia investigation, including uh, recently William Barr of The New York Times Magazine. Matatia, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really looking forward to uh, talking all this through. Well, there's a lot to talk through. The report is nearly 1,000 pages. I guess I'll just start with what I thought was the most explosive contention from the report, which is that Konstantin Kalimnik, this Manafort associate, worked closely with uh, the former Trump campaign chair, Paul Manafort. The Senate Intel Committee calls him a Russian intelligence officer. And yeah. that that is going a lot further than the Mueller report did. And so accordingly... Right. This was seen to be very explosive and, and deemed to be, and deemed to be evidence yeah. of that the Trump campaign is was was infiltrated by the Russian intelligence services. Maybe we should start there and get on to some of the other findings. Right, right. So, yeah. So the Sissy report, the Senate Intelligence Committee report, finds that Kalimnik is a Russian intelligence officer. Um, it has a lot of information about him. It's blacked out, uh, but then it also points out that he, I think, went to a school that trained Russian spies. Um, and uh, but yeah, I, a certain amount of it is just them saying that they reached this conclusion. Whereas Mueller said that Kalimnik uh, had ties to Russian intelligence. 
and then I guess if I if I'm got this right, conservatives have pushed back on this, or pro-Trump people have pushed back on this and said, well, he met with people from the State Department, so this shows us that he can't be a Russian intelligence agent, right? And that's that's like a column from John Solomon in the Hill that's pushing that. Do I do I have that right? Or, or the argument from Solomon is that, and Solomon obtained a lot of documents showing that Kalimnik was intimately involved in political issues uh, and meetings with the U.S. Embassy in Kiev when he was working with Manafort in Ukraine. So Kalimnik facilitated meetings. He served even as a translator for Victoria Nuland, uh, who was then a top State Department official. Essentially, that, essentially he, served, he served as a translator for Newland or for someone who Newland met with? He served, he served as a translator. I believe the, I, I'll, I can look it up. Uh, the Senate report, I believe, says that he served as a translator for Newland when she was conducting meetings in the um, in Kiev when she was running point for the Obama administration on Ukraine. So the, I think the point of Solomon, of, of his columns in The Hill and now at his own website and others, is that if Kalimnik compromised the Trump campaign because he's supposedly a Russian intelligence officer, then that means he also seriously compromised the U.S. embassy in Ukraine. But yet the Senate intelligence report makes no issue of that. It doesn't raise uh, in, intelligence concerns about whether or not the U.S. embassy was compromised, even though Kalimnik is uh, deemed as a sensitive source in the words of one FBI document that Solomon quoted. And so I think the point there is they're just highlighting the contrast between playing up Kalimnik's role or uh, or uh, 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 proximity to the Trump campaign and his heavy immersion uh, and involvement with the U.S. embassy in Kiev. So spies are going in and out of each other's embassies all the time. You know, there's like every embassy in Washington has got a political officer, which is sort of the open secret that that person is the chief intelligence officer operating here in the United States. So the fact to me, the fact that Kalimnik is going in and out of the U.S. embassy in here or in Kiev, it doesn't mean that he isn't or isn't is or isn't an intelligence officer. With the Newland thing, I think if, if if you're talking about the the Senate intelligence report, I think I found the line here. I did a, a just a word search. It says communications occurring in early 2015. This is page 87. Uh, made reference to a past instance where Kalimnik appears to have served as the interpreter for a meeting with Newland. Now, that doesn't say that he was Newland's interpreter. That means that Newland met with someone who was using Kalimnik as their interpreter. Okay, so, that, so the point is that Kalimnik is still, the supposed Russian intelligence officer, is right uh -huh. there in a meeting with a top U.S. official who was running point in Ukraine and really doing something very, very sensitive because at the time, the U.S. government was involved in, after helping to overthrow Yanukovych in the Maidan coup, the U.S. government was heavily involved in basically selecting the next Ukrainian government. As Newland even said in a leaked phone call, there's this famous phone call where someone hacked into a call between her and the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, where, yeah. where Newland says, you know, fuck the EU. And she even says that we're going to select, they're deciding who they want to select as Ukraine's next Next they're involved, so, involved in the Ukrainian revolution to some degree. I, I, I don't want to stipulate that you're <laughs> quoting it right, but 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 we can agree that they that there was involvement. I think. 
they're they're basically well regardless of what they're doing like they're basically in the call you can talk you can see it and we'll play it they're they're talking about who is going to be the next leader of ukraine and you know newland is basically dismissing the role of the european union which he says fuck the eu i think yats is the guy who's got the economic experience the governing experience he's he's the guy you know what he needs is cleach and tani book on the outside he needs to be talking to them four times a week you know I, I just think Kleech going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, I think that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it. And, you know, fuck the EU. The point is, whether or not Kalimic translated for Newland, maybe I got that wrong, but the point is, this supposed Russian intelligence officer is in this meeting with Newland and with a bunch of other people. In fact, he, the report also says that he arranged a meeting between uh, a Ukrainian leader and Joe Biden back when Biden was vice president. So the point is that if he is a Russian intelligence officer, then he has penetrated U.S. embassy activities at a very high level. But yet there's no issue made out of that. And I just find that curious. I think the point is that there's there, there's a double standard here. If he's a Russian intelligence asset, they have to they have to then raise that as an issue that he compromised the U.S. embassy in Ukraine. I if dispute I would dispute that there's evidence here that he compromised the U.S. embassy. Like, like diplomats don't have control over who they meet with. They don't have control over, you know, everyone who's in the room. They don't have control over who someone chooses to bring as an interpreter. Um, I think here it says that Klimnik was in a meeting with Newland and, and Lviv Bachin. I mean, that doesn't mean that she knew he was going to be there. The source for that, his presence there, is an email from him. So, I mean, I assume it's true, but, but I, I, I'm not seeing hard evidence here that he penetrated or compromised um, any U.S. like diplomatic operation. Well, I'm, I'm not, hold on a second. I'm not, alleging that he, I'm not alleging that he did because I don't think he's actually a Russian intelligence officer. At least I don't think they've proven that at all. My point is, if you're going to claim that Kalimnik's proximity to the Trump campaign because he worked with Paul Manafort and Paul Manafort gave him some polling data, which we can discuss, that's a major issue in the Kalimnik right. Manafort conspiracy theory. If you're going to claim that that was conspiracy theory. Wow. Okay. Well, I, think, I mean, you're you're I mean, the the conspiracy could be correct, but it's still to me right now just a, a theory. I don't mean that to be disparaging. You know, but but look, if you're if you're going to claim that if you're going to claim that uh, that it was that the Trump administration, the Trump campaign was compromised and that that was a counterintelligence threat, I don't see how you cannot apply that same conclusion to Kalimnik's dealings with the Ukrainian embassy, which by all accounts are much more extensive than his involvement in the Trump campaign, because he's translating meetings, he's attending meetings, and he's even described as a sensitive source in FBI documents because he because he was because he was giving because oh, a last point because he was giving the Ukrainian embassy uh, valuable information. That's that's also a quote from the Senate Intelligence Report. So he was a source. He wasn't just a guy who was there. He was a source. Well, we don't. So I'm looking at valuable information. Um, let's see, valuable. Uh, man, there's a lot, lot of valuable things. The point is, I mean, I, I'm just gonna assume you've got this valuable information. Here it says, uh, yeah, he was. He was. He, so he made was a valuable resource to the embassy. He was a val exactly. He was a valuable resource. So maybe I got the valuable for. He he was a valuable resource to the He's embassy. A fixer. He sets up meetings. Okay. That's one of the things so that he does. So if someone who is described by the Senate Intelligence Report as a valuable resource to the embassy, I want to go back to something you said <laughs> about what the difference is 
uh, or that there's no difference. What I'm not seeing here or what you haven't raised, so maybe there's flow of information that's valuable, maybe in the evidence of it, from clinic to the embassy. I'm not seeing anything, anyone saying that the embassy took valuable internal U.S. government information and handed it to clinic, which is exactly what Manafort did, right? Well, so then that's a difference. It's a big difference. You're saying, wait, Ma Manafort gave, you're talking about when Manafort gave Kalimnik the polling the data? data? Yeah, I'm talking about the polling data. We only have evidence with respect to the U.S. government and Kalimnik of information perhaps flowing one way. But it's definitely not flowing. There's not evidence that it flowed two ways. This report has uh, Rick Gates, Manafort's business partner, repeatedly sending what's over WhatsApp, like, really detailed breakdowns of internal polling data from the Trump campaign. We've got Manafort printing that information out before meetings with Klimnik, and I'm just not seeing... Okay, I'll grant you that point. There is not an analogous transfer of information where you have it documented that the U.S. Embassy gives Kalimnik some data, some some whether it's polling data right. or whatever, uh, where versus in the case of the Trump campaign, you have it alleged that Manafort gave... Kalimnik, some internal Trump campaign polling data, and that Manafort instructed Kalimnik to send this to some Ukrainian tycoons that he wanted to do more business with. So it's true. You don't have that analogous flow of information. But the point is, if someone is a Russian, if we take seriously the allegation that Kalimnik is a Russian intelligence officer and he's treated as a valuable resource by the embassy, they're having conversations. He's got to be gleaning at least some information from these conversations. And he's got to be gleaning information, especially when he's brokering and translating meetings with top U.S. officials. So if he's a Russian intelligence officer, I'm sorry, that sounds to me like he has penetrated the embassy and he's got to be gleaning at least some valuable information. And I would say far more valuable information than some polling data that was mostly public, that, that, that was mostly public. This I guess we have to agree to disagree on this because my understanding of this world is that most diplomat the distinction between diplomats and spies is academic. And diplomats, we meet with diplomats, spies meet with spies. And what's described regarding clinics interactions with the embassy in this report, uh, to me, strikes me as just business as usual, uh, particularly given the fact that he's a local fixer and U.S. Uh, diplomats in Ukraine have to figure out how to get around. Um, and they're not using him as their translator. Other people are coming in and, you know, and, and you can't, your control over these rooms when you're not on your home turf is limited. So they, 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 they but I, I don't think that counts as him penetrating the embassy because when you say he penetrated the embassy, we don't have evidence that he, I mean, of course he's got his eyes and his ears open. And of course he's like noticing stuff if he is an intelligence officer who's doing his job or if he's just like a smart guy. But that, I don't think that counts as, you know, merely being on the premises for a meeting. I mean, I don't think that's a penetration suggests that he's got like operatives in there or he's got some. Well, he, he is allegedly an operative. And my point is, listen, I'm not arguing that he actually penetrated the embassy because, again, as I said before, I don't think he's actually a Russian intelligence officer. At least I don't think that that allegation has been proven. I'm saying I'm saying I'm saying by the standards of the argument that Kalimnik's proximity to the Trump campaign meant that Russian intelligence had penetrated the Trump campaign, which is the argument of the Senate Intel report, and is the argument of anyone who believes that Kalimnik was a Russian intelligence officer and that that was a grave 
counterintelligence threat by those standards than Kalimnik's activities around the U U.S. embassy, where I'd say what I would argue would be even more damning. I'm not actually arguing that he penetrated anything because I think, to, to use your term, his activities in Ukraine and his activities uh, with the Trump campaign were business as usual. They, there was no, uh, I mean, to, to get to this point where you think that because he gets some polling data from Paul Manafort, that that is possibly because of a Russian intelligence operation, you have to connect a lot of evidentiary chains that are just not there. First of all, there's no evidence that he even of Kalimnik even doing anything with this polling data, although you could argue that he covered that up by erasing his communications, as the Senate report suggests. There's no evidence that these Ukrainian oligarchs got any polling data, uh, which is that was the intended recipients. And then you have to account for the fact that everybody involved, including the star witness here, the person who basically revealed all this to the Mueller team, uh, Rick Gates, he, he, he said very clearly that the reason he thought that Manafort gave Kalimnik this polling data was because Manafort, as we all know, was deeply in debt. He wanted to show his former uh, clients or maybe some potential clients who he hadn't worked worked with yet, that he was valuable, that he was with the Trump campaign, that they had a shot. And so he was trying to get that polling data to them to show his value. That's what Rick Gates said. That's even what the Senate uh, intelligence community says, that Manafort tried to leverage his position on the, on the Trump campaign to get more business. So there's actually a very, I think, plausible explanation for why he shared the polling data. And to get to the but point where it, to get to the point where it becomes a part of a Russian government interference operation, you have to take a lot of steps, including that, what would the Russian government have done with this information, with this mostly public polling data? And if they got it, what what could they possibly do with it? It's, it's very detailed, county by county, demo by demo. The, some of the polling data, this is all in the report. It's an Excel sheet with more than 100 questions. It's not public polling data. Did you? I mean, it, 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 it's really fancy like polling data that you would use if you wanted to you know, target specific people in specific areas with specific messages, which is you know, exactly what we know, you know Cambridge Analytica and some of these Facebook campaigns did. So it's, it's not public. And it's 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 pretty fancy, fine grained stuff from from you know what from what the report says. The the New York Times described it when it when it first reported on on this whole affair, described it as mostly public. They said the most. Yeah, that was before the Mueller report came out. That was before. I, I've seen. I, have you seen anything that shows that most of the data was actually private and that it was special? Yeah, it's this is what the whole this is what this whole document's about. It's it talks about it's all from this guy. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Fabrizio's firm attached to the email was a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet prepared by Fabrizio's firm containing historical polling data and internal campaign polling data derived from mid-July covering each of the 137 designated market areas, DMAs, across you know, the following uh, states, which include Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, all, all the big swing states. The spreadsheet, you know, in, uh, included uh, voting data from previous elections for the purposes of comparison with internal Trump campaign data for each DMA. Uh, so this is not public data, and it's not uh, just a, 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 a top-level gloss, you know? Okay, well, I I have not seen anyone say that that this was actually private and that it was not public. That, that, what? Hang on, hang on, hang on. I, I, let, I'm, let, going I'm going by the time set, but the thing is, look, let me, no, no, let, no, let, no, me, no, let, me let me accept, but listen. It says internal campaign polling data. 
how is that public data? It says internal campaign polling data was attached to this email that Manafort printed out uh, prior to his meeting with Kalimnik. So, okay. so how, I mean, are we, are, do we really have to agree to disagree on public versus, I mean, it, it says here in black and white that it was internal detailed data. Okay. I don't want to get too bogged down on this issue because to me it's... This is an no, important... No, 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 no. Oh, hold on. Does it, does it say that that Manafort gave this to Kalimnik and, and he specifically wanted this shared with Ukrainian oligarchs? Or is this just what he printed out before a meeting? He printed it out before a meeting and Gates repeatedly sent him the same data over WhatsApp at different times. Okay. Now, where it went after Kalimnik got it uh, I think I think you're right. We don't know that. So that's the thing. So, but let's assume, about, well, listen. So we don't we, we, we don't even know if Kalimnik got it. But let's assume he did. Okay. Let's assume he did. Let's assume that Kalimnik got uh, public data, and he, he also got private data too. Let's assume he did. I just want to hang on. Hang on a second. So, just going back to like, so we've got this report. It's a thousand pages long. It comes from the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh -huh. right? And it's not just the majority opinion. It's the uh, it's a unanimous opinion. So everyone on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Well, there's one. Republicans. There's one dissenter. There's one Republican who didn't sign on. But yeah, is that true? Yes. He didn't sign off on the whole thing. There was one. There he, was one. There's one Republican who did not sign on. I forgot his did name. He just but end a little complaint at the end. Maybe you're. I mean, I don't know. So, okay. Well, we can assume that's true. But so so does that does that count for nothing? What counts for does me is we, what counts. Right what counts for me is what the available evidence shows and our best uh, use of logic and analysis to weigh whether whether it's valid. So look, the- When they, when they say the clinics and so it's not just the intelligence community saying it, it's not just- Well, it's not, Miller's well, hold on a second. It, it's not, it's not, it is not the intelligence quote unquote community saying it because nobody except the Senate Intel Committee has made this allegation. Mueller made some vague allegations that that Kalimnik has has Russian intelligence ties, but didn't specify what that means. And in fact, and in fact, and in fact, when Manafort's attorneys asked in multiple discovery requests whether or not the Mueller team had any evidence of Manafort speaking to Russian intelligence, the Mueller team responded that they have no records responsive to those requests. And which means if they were withholding that, then they were committing a crime because you can't withhold material like that from right but, but but i think you i think the sissy got stuff that Mueller didn't have which i think maybe there's another thing you and i might not be in total agreement on uh with respect to the gru hack and leak operation on especially on the russia wikileaks allegations it does look like they didn't get anything that Mueller didn't have with respect to this manafort kalimnik stuff they have all kinds of documents that were produced to them that were given to them under subpoena that Mueller did not have access to. So I think they even acknowledge, and this just this is um, makes sense because they don't have the same uh, in intelligence and, inve and investigative investigative powers that the Mueller team does. That they got way less information than the Mueller team did, which makes sense because the Mueller team is a law enforcement entity. Whereas the Senate Intelligence Committee is is relegated mostly to subpoenaing doc documents, uh, viewing documents, but it can't, you know, for example, get yeah, a wiretap, it, you know, people with prosecution. I don't think Mueller could was capable of doing his own wiretaps. Maybe I'm mistaken about that. I'm pretty sure he couldn't. But the one thing about he the had Senate the power to if he wanted to. He, he he's 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 under the FBI, whereas the Senate uh, can't do yeah. that. But they but they had they had a much broader remit than Mueller. 
Mueller's remit was only to determine whether or not crimes occurred and to write a report explaining his prosecutorial uh, decisions, you know? The Senate Intelligence Committee was like, their remit was, we'll figure out what happened here between Trump and Russia, including uh, counterintelligence issues, which was specifically cabined off from what uh, from what Mueller was doing. No, well, listen, so- let me let me answer you right there. Uh, Peter Strzok, the, in, initially the top FBI agent on, on the Trump-Russia probe, he was asked. Right. He was asked about this in the Atlantic in his first interview that he's doing ahead of a new book, and because there there was recently a, a report in the New York Times by Mike Schmidt saying that yeah. Rod Rosenstein curtailed a counterintelligence investigation, uh, right, and, and, right. Basi- yeah, and basically it's, it's basically still, prevented yeah. the Mueller team from looking at the issues you describe, whether or not Strzok Trump is there's a counterintelligence yeah. issue. And Strzok said this quote: "I didn't feel such a limitation when I discussed this with Mueller and others." It was agreed that FBI personnel attached to the special counsel's office would do the counterintelligence work, which necessarily included the president. So it's not true, according to Peter Strzok, that Rod Rosenstein prevented them from looking at counterintelligence. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying, I don't know if Rosenstein prevented them or not. All I know is when I look at the Mueller report, Mueller says this is like about my this contains all the reasoning for who I prosecuted, who I didn't and why this is a determination about whether laws were broken. This is not, and this is just the text of the report, this is not an assessment about whether there was a counterintelligence risk. Well, they know, they note that they shared, they note that they shared. He says, I'm not going there. This isn't, and whether Rosenstein told him not to, whether he decided not to, and of course these FBI agents, no one prevented them from talking to each other, but that doesn't mean that Mueller went after counterintelligence at all in his report when he explicitly says he's not going to. You know? He doesn't explicitly say he's not going to. In fact, he says that he says that counter. He says that FBI agents involved mm-hmm. in counterintelligence were attached to his investigation, and that counterintelligence uh, information that came in was shared with with the FBI. And far right. from hold on a second, hold on a second. And far from writing a report simply explaining his declination decisions or his decisions to file charges, the Mueller team put out a sprawling narrative that was very very long and went into great detail. That was not just about whether or not they were going to charge crimes. They, they told us a very, very long story. I don't think you, you can look at that report and say this was just about a narrow thing of whether or not they could charge a crime. They told a very long story. And that includes Kalimnik, where they floated this possibility that he, that Kalimnik uh, passed on polling data somehow to Russia, which they ultimately found no evidence for. And again, they had their opportunity. If they believed that he was a Russian intelligence officer, they could have said he's a Russian intelligence officer. Or they could have said that and redacted that. Instead, they said that he has Russian intelligence ties. And the reason why I think they say that is because they actually have no evidence that he's a Russian intelligence officer. And well, what what they have what they have is a pretty uh, is is a pretty thin list. He trained at a Soviet military academy. He he worked as a translator. But the problem is, then he went on to work at the International Republican Institute for ten years in Moscow, which is a U.S. government funded entity. Then he works for Paul Manafort. Then he uh, is is deemed a sensitive source by the U.S. Embassy. So he has a lot of, you know, we already addressed this, but I think what the Senate Intelligence Committee did is simply they took the same information and made their own assessment. They even say it's their own assessment. And by the way, included in their assessment is they cite the fact that in emails to people like Sam, people- we, we disagree about something important though here that we need to figure out because there's an answer to this. Did the Senate Intelligence Committee have access to information 
that Mueller did not. I say that they did. You say that they did not. Uh, and when I look at these footnotes, I see all these references to documents that are labeled sissy that imply that they're the sissy's own material that was like handed over to them. I know that they did their own interviews. I, it says at the top that they issued their own subpoenas. So I am not quite understanding why you think they did not have access to under, I understand that they did not have all the same powers that Mueller had. I'm not understanding where you're getting this idea. They did not have access to some additional interviews, additional documents, additional materials that they were able to obtain from people under subpoena. Where because they even um, acknowledge, look, I'll, let me quote from the uh, from the report. This uh, this I believe is from the uh, Democratic addendum where the uh, where the Democratic senators attach their additional opinions. They say, "quote the uh, Senate committee's quote power to investigate, which does not include search warrants or wiretaps or, or wiretaps, falls short of the FBI's." Yeah, they have so too. Yeah. So too do its staffing resources and technical capabilities. Unquote. So look, there's no way you can argue that uh, Robert Mueller having access to all the different agencies. Not, that's not them saying that we didn't get any more stuff on our own. I'm sure they, so you, well, their investigation continued after Robert Mueller's ended. So I'm sure they got information that the Mueller team didn't. Okay, good. So we agree on this, that they had access to some stuff that Mueller didn't have access as a result to. Of the, as, a, as a result of there being linear time, yes. But the question is whether any okay, of that evidence... Well, they did their own investigation. They weren't just limited to Mueller and his files. So we agree on that. Good. Okay. But Mueller was not just limited to to uh, to a small set of files. Mueller, what I'm saying, had access to a much bigger range of files, which means that it's strange to elevate the Senate Intelligence Committee as a bigger source than Mueller when Mueller had far greater capabilities and so much of the committee's information actually came from Mueller. And by the way, look, in its uh, in its section, when it's explaining why it assesses, well, hold on a second, hold on a second. In, in its section, in its section where it's in its section where it's explaining why it assesses that Kalimnik is a Russian intelligence officer, it includes a series of uh, other points that they say that it says are relevant to its assessment, and it includes the fact that in an email to his business associate Sam Patton, that Kalimnik denied Russian interference, and their evidence for that is a footnote which says that he emailed uh, uh, Patton an article from the Financial Times and then made a, a joke about how uh, the investigators must be having a hard time chasing all these squirrels in the dark. Something like that. That's their evidence that he denied Russian interference. And the fact that he denied Russian interference is deemed worthy enough to include as evidence that he's a Russian intelligence officer. We don't know, as you said before, what all their evidence is because it's redacted. But the fact that they include something like a, a tongue-in-cheek comment in an email to substantiate their claim that he's a Russian intelligence officer says to me says to me that they did not find a smoking gun in what was redacted. Um, well, I would never claim that they found a smoking gun in what's redacted. Or something or something concrete. That's just a anything. That's a anything. Something concrete. Um, but I mean, do you believe? Let me let me ask you a more trollish question. Do you believe that KSM was ever waterboarded? Or that even a person in KSM exists, and that he was waterboarded at Guantanamo. Yes, you believe it yes. happened. Yes, and what's what's the evidence that that did happen? Well, you have uh, whistleblowers speaking out about it. I mean, that's how we know about the, the torture program, 
and you have a uh, a investigation by the Senate Intelligence Committee under different leadership, by the way. Uh, and you also have um, that wasn't even. You, what do you mean different leadership? I'm sorry. With the how's that? Well, Feinstein. Fun? Feinstein was the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, on the Democratic side when all that was happening, right. and I think so. Feinstein's more trustworthy than 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 Burr. Or what's the distinction? I'm saying if you compare the two, I think Feinstein was more willing to be critical and to actually conduct oversight of the CIA here than I see that than I see that than I see that Mark Warner has. So the committee had different leadership then. We agree on that. You agree though that that report told us things about KSM and him being waterboarded that you now take as being more or less true. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so so here we have this other report about something completely different by the same committee under different leadership. Unlike the torture report, which was just a majority report, this is a unanimous report, except maybe there's one dissenter. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. Um, but but, but does, it, does it really count for nothing when they say polemics, is it zero is really, so why doesn't it count for anything? No, it doesn't count for nothing. But to make an explosive claim, like this guy's a Russian intelligence officer, there, there needs to be some evidence. There needs, there needs to be something. As we, as we discussed, it, it's a lot, of it, a lot of it is redacted. And what is there to me is extremely underwhelming. And it's actually a rehash of what was in the Mueller report. Um, and by the way, look, this point about, uh, this point about, hold on a second, this, po like, look, this point about, this, hold on a second, this point about sources, the New York Times mm -hmm. reported that Saddam Hussein was trying to buy aluminum tubes. Does that mean that I shouldn't believe, uh, what you write in the New York Times? So it's possible for a body, an outlet, an investigative, uh, authority to produce some factual information. It's possible for them to produce some bogus information. And the way we gauge that is evaluating what the available evidence is. And my point here in the case of Kalimnik is that it's either redacted or what is there tells us absolutely nothing. I don't think that Kalimnik sending an email denying Russian interference is should <laughs> weighs on whether or not he's a Russian intelligence officer. Well, I think, I mean, so Russiagate to me is like a matrix of uh, hypotheses, allegations, and proof, you know? So, and I, I try, I started trying to draw this up. I would say that the, the, the link between Manafort and Kalimnik is, is, is proven. I think the link between Kalimnik and the Kremlin or Kalimnik and Putin, I would not say it's proven in the same way. I think it's like, I think it's quite likely though. I mean, I think, I think this evidence is worth something and I think it's fairly convincing. Um, and then there's stuff from Russiagate you know, that I'm sure you, you have on the tip of your tongue, and so do I. Like the Alpha Bank server stuff, which looks like it's totally bogus. Or like the P-tape, which if it existed, we would all have seen it by now. So it's like a mix of things. But I think this idea that, that um, I mean, let me figure out where you're at with this. So I think it's like, so do, do you think Russia interfered at all? I think the Russian social media posts have been absolutely proven. Uh, there were memes posted on social media by the Internet Research Agency. There were uh -huh. there were some deceptive ads. There were some attempts to organize some fake rally uh, rallies and, and pit. And the impact of the impact is very disputed about that. Well, I think the impact is is zilch. And I, I think it's a act of contempt towards American voters to claim that these dumb Russian ads that nobody uh, uh, even really saw 
that were barely about the election and that were juvenile memes impacted a single vote. And I think that the obsession over this is is actually a massive disinformation I campaign. Opinion, more or less. I respect him. I haven't I haven't gone deep on it. But the, but then we so then we've got the hack and okay, the hacking. Together. So yes, I think uh, and I, to me, the theft of the Democratic Party emails is actually the only legitimate aspect of this entire thing where there's actually something there, which is that somebody did steal the emails and somebody did release them. Uh, and they were damaging to Hillary Clinton, although we can debate how much. I think that the case that Mueller has presented has many holes. I think it's quite possible that Russia did it or that uh, whether it's the Russian government, Russian intelligence or it's people inside of Russia. But I certainly the but the problem is I don't accept it as established fact when you look at it and there are a lot of holes in it, which I've written about extensively and we can talk about it if you want. But, you know, one component that I think is important concerns the role of WikiLeaks, because the Senate report goes out of its way to say that WikiLeaks likely and by the way, the word likely is a common occurrence. It's a common device throughout this intelligence report. Uh, a Kalimnik likely was uh, a vehicle for Russia to penetrate the Trump campaign. Roger Stone and Trump likely discussed WikiLeaks. It's used on and on and on. And so in the case of WikiLeaks, they say that WikiLeaks likely knew that it was actively a part of a Russian intelligence effort. But I don't see any, any evidence for that. And I see what I see is a stunning lack of curiosity starting with the fact that Mueller, despite having the opportunity to do so, never asked for an interview with Julian Assange, even though that was floated. Assange's attorneys tried to broker an interview uh, between Assange and Congress, and that was shot down. And in fact, I, I know from sources close to WikiLeaks that, they re that, that the Senate Intelligence Committee reached out to Assange. Assange said yes, or Assange's attorney in the U.S. said, how can we arrange this? And they never heard back. So from Mueller to the Senate Intelligence Committee, there was a, a stunning lack of curiosity about the person who is at the heart of all, of all this because he possessed the stolen emails and released the stolen emails that are the basis for this entire thing. And I think we have to wonder why there was such a lack of curiosity. It's one of many reasons why I don't just accept everything they say as established fact. I didn't know that about uh, Assange and the committee and an offer of an interview, but um, I'm happy to, t I see reports of it. But yeah, I mean, we can take take your word for it for now. Why would the committee say these things are likely if they're such liars, they could just say that they're true and then they could classify out, they could, they could, they could redact some blank paragraphs that would supposedly prove that these things are there. Why would they even say that they're likely? That's the they, beauty they of innuendo. Just, that's, that's how Russiagate has worked from the start. You can suggest with qualified language, ambiguous language, uh, with uh, just all these suppositions, suggest that things might be true. The words suggest and appear and potentially and likely, these are uh, common devices throughout Russiagate from the start, including in the Mueller, including in, in the Mueller investigation, which they used to perfection in their indictments to create a narrative. It's a way of presenting the public with a narrative that something is there when really they have no actual concrete evidence that there is, which is why they can't affirm, they affirm that it's true. Evidence. They do have concrete evidence. This WhatsApp messages. They do have concrete evidence that they do. That, uh, Manafort printed out these Excel polling, you know, things prior to his meeting with Clinton. They do. Uh, but they then, do the, but the problem is that then you, but then there's no relationship. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Yeah, no, go. No, no, no. I mean, so there is, I mean, it's not like 
but I, I, I get what you're saying about the, uh, the likely and is certainly the, the word certainly does appear in there. And the problem is with, with, with innuendo and qualified language is that it leaves room for the most maximalist interpretations. So every single thing is then uh, interpreted at its most uh, damning. Why do you think all these scenario? Republican senators? Sorry, why do you think all these Republican senators signed off on this report if it's if it's if it's intended to be uh, you know an innuendo filled um, confirmation bias justifying you know maximalist Russiagate screed? Why would they? Well, here I can only speculate, but uh, I have many reasons. First of all, when it comes to WikiLeaks. I think there is bipartisan hatred of WikiLeaks. They want to destroy WikiLeaks because WikiLeaks has exposed U.S. government crimes and secrets going back many years. And so you have a bipartisan consensus now around destroying it. That's why Mike Pompeo, Trump's secretary of state, called WikiLeaks a hostile uh, non-state intelligence organization. That's why Trump's Justice Department is trying to uh, extradite Julian Assange under a draconian exercise of the Espionage Act. And you have, and that's why well, Robert Mueller, when he was asked about WikiLeaks at his, uh, his appearance, uh, his congressional testimony last summer, he said he absolutely agrees with Mike Pompeo that WikiLeaks is a hostile. So you have this effort, you want to take- WikiLeaks is a, a political football. Um, I have my own, you know, I would tend to agree with some of these things that you're, that, that, People who don't like WikiLeaks are saying about WikiLeaks. I would agree with some of those things, but you're right that it's it's a politicized thing. But the Clemming thing has nothing to do with WikiLeaks. Okay. Why would the Republicans sign off on this finding that Clemming's a Russian intelligence agent when that would seem or could be construed as you know confirming collusion? You know. Okay. Basically. So here I can only speculate, but I, I have I have my theories. First of all, Richard Burr, who was for most of this investigation, he was the chair of of the Senate Intelligence Committee until he recently had to set, step down over suspicions of insider training, uh, insider training trading during the pandemic. But Richard Burr, back in the early days of the Trump administration, Burr appeared with Devin Nunez, uh, and they basically publicly knocked down reports that a report that was in the New York Times that the Trump campaign had contacts with senior Russian intelligence officials. This was a report, I believe it was out on February 14th, around then 2017. And it was explosive because it was just as the Trump administration was getting underway and it was just as suspicion was, it was after the dossier had been published, the Steele dossier. And there was growing calls and talk of a special counsel of this Trump-Russia matter being investigated. And all of a sudden comes along this explosive report in the New York Times alleging uh, that claiming that U.S. intelligence had intercepted communications between the Trump campaign, top officials on the Trump campaign, and senior Russian intelligence officials. And, and is this the Flynn phone calls or is this something this else? Is not the, this is not the Flynn phone call. This is after okay. the Flynn phone, phone call has been leaked. But now this okay. is a new story. This is, a, this is an explosive. I believe the headline is uh, Trump associates had con repeated contacts with senior Russian intelligence officials. So it's a crazy allegation. A very explosive allegation in the New York Times. And at the time, uh, Devin Nunez and Richard Burr both knocked this down. And you had that incident where Nunez went to the White House and then he was at nighttime, he was accused of basically doing PR for the Trump campaign and uh, the Trump administration. And Richard Burr got sucked into that. And Richard Burr came under heavy attack. There's a lot of articles attacking him, accusing him of basically not doing his job, which is 
being nonpartisan as head of the Senate Intelligence Committee and doing Trump's bidding. So I personally think that Burr was shook by that. I also think that the Senate Intelligence Committee operates mostly as a rubber stamp on the U.S. intelligence agency's activities. And I also think, uh, one more point, one more point, one more point, one more point. One more point. <laughs> I also think that there is a bipartisan consensus around undermining Trump's rhetorical calls, what he said during the campaign, of having better relations with Russia. I think you have nobody in the Republican camp, except for a, a very small wing, uh, and certainly nobody now in the Democratic side that supports that. And Kalimnik was involved. Among the things he was trying to do was pursue this peace plan uh, in Ukraine that would resolve the proxy war that is going on between the U.S. and Russia in Donbass, in, in eastern Ukraine. And I think, personally, that, that there was a bipartisan interest here in tainting that, in tainting efforts at back-channel peace efforts. The Senate Intelligence Report even speaks disparagingly of Russian attempts to conduct diplomacy during the transition, as if attempting to conduct diplomacy is a bad thing. It is a bad thing if you believe in U.S. hegemony, and obviously a country like Russia is a counter to that, and you want to and you want to undermine, and you also want to justify the 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 uh, you know all, all the uh, profitable weapons contracts uh, that come from having high tensions with Russia. So I think that geopolitical imperative was at play here. But again, that is obviously just my own speculation. Okay, so you feel like it was maybe the bipartisan consensus among Russia hawks that they needed to give brush back the White House's attempts to uh, have warmer relations with Putin, you know, and potentially this would mean rubber stamping, icy allegations about, uh, you know, sketchy contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia in order to sort of bolster their case, if I heard you right. That is my speculation, that the fact that they see uh, what I think is innocuous behavior in a very sinister light, because that is colored by their hawkish uh, views and their views of and their aims at promoting U.S. militarism, a militarism that is justified by having a high state of tensions between the U.S. and Russia and not having diplomacy. I mean, there's definitely big policy differences on on Russia and Trump certainly hasn't gotten his way about his desire to leave NATO, for example, which is something he, um, by a lot of accounts, quite desperately wants to do, um, has even come close to trying to do, hasn't been able to do it. A lot of people who voted for him want him to do it. Um, so there is like a big, uh, I think you and I agree that there is a very hot policy debate running in the background of all this, which is, you know, definitely makes it harder to, you know, to weigh the evidence. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's all I agree with, 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 with that. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, I just wish I, uh, thought this, all this stuff was definitely true. Then we could really yell at each other. I just think it counts. I think these out, these, what's asserted here and under, in the report, like, I think it counts for something, and it seems like they do have some stuff to back it up, like this, you know, Excel sheet. It does seem like they did go, you know, pretty deep. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. 
And then, you know, then you've got clearly Stone was attempting or, you know, came, was going back and forth with WikiLeaks and claiming that he had. But he wasn't going back and forth with WikiLeaks. He was claiming that he had a back channel with WikiLeaks. But again, his trial underscored that he didn't. His only two possible sources were Jerome Corsi, the uh, the inventor of such great things as the birther conspiracy theory and the swift boat smear campaign against John Kerry. So I think it's fair to rule him out as a back channel to WikiLeaks. And then Randy Critico, who is a left-wing comedian who I know, who interviewed Assange once in late August 2016, and that was the extent of their contacts. Who is DMing, who is DMing with Assange? Roger Stone DMed with WikiLeaks, but I their first... DM comes when uh, when basically or one of the first DMs comes when WikiLeaks says to uh, Roger Stone, please stop making false claims of association, you know, because Roger Stone is asking WikiLeaks for credit because he's been defending them. And WikiLeaks says something like, yeah, thanks, but please stop making false claims of association between us. And so, look. All the available, and so the fact that the Trump campaign was relying on Roger Stone to get to WikiLeaks, and Roger Stone had no actual contacts to WikiLeaks, which is a inconvenient fact that's been really overlooked for all the time that's been wasted on Roger Stone. It's just one more case where you have the maximalist interpretations of the available evidence. So it's true. At a certain point, Roger Stone claimed that he had some inside information with WikiLeaks, but instead of taking Roger Stone's bluster on faith and ignoring the fact that he later denied it. You'd have Trump on stage saying, you know, Russia, if you've got the emails, please release the emails. Yes, at a news conference, he made a, uh, you can call it, maybe he's being serious, maybe it's a joke, I don't know. But look, um, if, if you have a conspiracy, you're probably not announcing it at a news <laughs> at a news conference like that. I mean- If you're, if you're Trump, you most certainly are. I mean, that's his uh, MO. I mean, he talks, he, everything is that happens in plain sight with, the post office with the prospect of a third term. Um, I'm trying with this Antifa terrorism stuff. I mean, he lays it all out there. Uh, you know, that's like his, his deal kind of, right? Okay. So look, I, I can't, I don't know how to respond to that beyond just saying that if, if there was a conspiracy between Trump and Russia, the evidence is not him saying at a press conference, Russia, if you're listening, it's just, it's not a public, it's not, that's not how you prove a conspiracy. You prove a conspiracy by showing that there's contact between the two sides. There's some kind of arrangement. And there's none of that, I think, in any of these reports, in the Mueller report and the Senate report. The, the best they have, I think, is that they say that Kalimnik is a Russian intelligence officer and that he was around the campaign. But even there, well, even there, well, again, again, I personally don't think... Yeah. If Kalimnik were a Russian intelligence officer, and I, I get that you strongly reject the notion that he is, would that be sufficient in your mind to establish, you know, coordination, inclusion, whatever you want to call it? No, Roots? no, it would, it would establish that the Russian uh, intelligence services compromised the Trump campaign because here you have Trump's campaign chair working closely with someone who is, if this is true, with the Russian intelligence officer that they've compromised. But then again, to show a conspiracy, you have to show some kind of conspiracy, some kind of some some kind of arrangement, some somebody willing to say, yes, there was this agreement between the two sides. There was this understanding. But we have none of that, none, none of that in, 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 in any of these reports. And what you have and what I think everyone has overlooked is that a Trump administration that has been extremely hawkish on Russia 
that is pulling out of vital nuclear treaties, that is trying to overthrow Russia's ally in Venezuela, uh, that is staying in Syria and occupying a large section of, of Northeast Syria to basically impo- to basically uh, prevent Syria from reconstructing, possibly imposing brutal sanctions on Syria. You can go on and on and on with all these hawkish things that Trump is doing. And I think far more hawkish than Obama was, including, for example, on Ukraine, where Trump sent weapons to Ukraine that Obama refused to do because he didn't want to further inflame the proxy war and he didn't want to arm neo-Nazis. But the problem is all this gets ignored, I think, because our media and our political class are so attached to a narrative that Trump does Russia's bidding. So the consequences of this are not to me just, they're not just, it's not just factual consequences or journalistic consequences. It's, It's real life and it's dangerous for the world because we're overlooking deliberately, I think, all the varied reckless things that Trump is actually doing towards Russia. You think Trump's foreign policy is more hawkish than Obama? Absolutely. Well, who got us into Syria? Well, Obama did, that's true. But I think that no matter- Who got us us into Libya? Sure, okay, look, we can have a discussion if you want of who has been more hawkish. Uh, I, first of all, I think that, I mean, I don't want to defend Obama here because I, I oppose pretty much all this foreign policies, except for the Iran nuclear deal. But well, I, I, I think that if Mitt Romney or John, if Mitt Romney or John McCain would, would have done the exact same thing, that's my only point there. But but also on Russia, I'm saying on Russia, Trump has been far more hawkish than Obama, far more, far more. Trump tore up the INF treaty. Uh, Obama uh, reached. Well, that's true. I mean, Trump's not Trump's not getting his way on Russia. You know, he's not like he's not getting his way on NATO. He wants to leave NATO and, you know, he but that's not uh, he's for whatever reason. I mean, I guess his supporters would chalk it up to the like, quote unquote, deep state. But he is that he has not been able to find a way to do it as as often as he talks about doing it and wants to do it, whether it's, a you know, I I don't want to get into whether it's like a good idea or a bad idea. You probably think leaving NATO is a good idea. I probably think it's a bad idea, but whatever. Trump wants to do and he can't. I would throw a party. I would throw a party if, if NATO was uh, was dissolved. <laughs> but but I look, I don't know what's in Trump's brain and I don't know what he really intended, how sincere he was about Russia. I think it's quite possible that the reason why he's so nice to Russia, because he really wants to build a hotel there. I think that to me is a very plausible yeah, suspicion. Yeah, and there's a lot about that hotel in this Yes, song. there is. But, but my point is, regardless of what his intentions are, the point is, the fact is, and this to me is what's most important, is what the fact is, what, what the actual reality is, Trump's administration has been dangerously hawkish on Russia, even more hawkish than Obama was, who was already pretty hawkish. And I think one of many adverse consequences, one of many negative consequences of this Russiagate thing is to overlook that. And for all the suspicion that Trump is compromised by Russia and does Russia's bidding, it requires ignoring the reality of what Trump is actually doing because Vladimir Putin doesn't want Trump to be having war games on his borders, to be tearing up the INF treaty, to now be, Trump is probably gonna kill the new, the new START treaty, a wonderful treaty that Obama reached that limits, that is now the last remaining limitation on, a, on the nuclear weapon stockpiles of these two countries. Trump is probably gonna kill that treaty. Russia has been begging the US to, to have talks and to have those talks in time before it expires next year, and 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 Trump is Trump is rebuffing them because they want to because they want to bring in China. So all these I mean, th- yeah, 
do you, I get you have strong views about this. We're moving pretty far outside of my area of expertise with like the arc of U.S. Russia relations, and I don't want to, you know, I don't, I'm not a, I mean, I know, I know something about it, but I don't, I don't have, you know, I just kind of, I don't want to come off as endorsing your views. I don't want to really debate them either. Okay. Um, okay. That's but, fair. But no, I get, but no, that's fine. I'm not, you know, you can, it's your show and I, you, I want you, you need to have space to make your points and stuff. Um, uh, and there definitely is like, yeah, there's disagreement about Russia policy and that's part of the backdrop to this. Uh, and whether Russia is like some sort of giant threat or not, there's profound uh, disagreement about that. And people very feel very strongly on both sides. And um, yeah, and uh, you can tell I'm a because <laughs> I'm not a Russia expert. Well, um, and and look, uh, and and um, yeah, and look, the the issue is whether or not you know, as we're here to discuss, whether there was a conspiracy between the two sides. I'm uh, what I'm saying though is that the, whether or not Trump is compromised by Russia, one good uh, way to judge that is look at his actual Russia policies, and the fact that he's been more if he, if you agree that he's been more hawkish and dangerous on Russia than Obama was. So that's a well, this, the, this, so this is the most explosive Russiagate allegation, which, which in my view hasn't been proven. And this is like the most controversial thing that Trump is beholden to Russia somehow, right? Mm -hmm. That he's like, is that a good way to put it? Yeah. That he, that he's compromised or that he's, that there's something going on, mm -hmm. right? That he's not, it's not just that he happens to like Russia and that maybe Putin preferred to have a president who was more in line with his views or was just maybe like, maybe even, you know, would would cause more issues domestically. It's that there's actually something going on prior to Trump's election between the two of them. Yeah. This allegation, right? Yeah. Which is, yeah, uh, which cuts to the heart of whether of Trump's Trump's legitimacy. You know, whether he's like a real president or not. And it's very, it's a very tricky. I think this is probably something you and I agree on to some extent. It's a very tricky thing to uh, sort of work your way out of that once you've raised it as a possibility, uh, you know? Well, only if you're more committed to your to the narrative than you are to the facts. I think the facts are pretty explicit, and that's why I form the opinions that I form. That's just my view. I don't think, I, I don't see much complicated about this entire thing at all. I think there's been a huge effort, a lot of propaganda um, that has flooded the U.S. media airways to convince people that Trump is beholden to Russia, that he conspired with Russia. And my point from the start is that view has required simply throwing logic out the window and also ignoring all of the countervailing evidence, which is which to me has always been there. Well, we agree that it's not proven that Trump is beholden to Russia. You maybe think it's been disproven. Um, I guess we disagree on whether when you talk about collusion or conspiracy, I hear you using sort of alluding to Mueller's definition of what's a conspiracy, that two parties have an express or implied agreement, like a hard agreement, uh -huh. that you're going to do this and I'm going to do this in response. I think, I don't know who gave him that, who, who, who steered him from collusion to conspiracy, because the letter that he you know, told him what he was going to do, it says, I think it says collusion or coordination. It doesn't say conspiracy. Anyway, that's not how, you know, this kind of transactional world that the Manaforts and Kalimniks dwell in uh, works. It's like a series of like interlocking implied quid pro quos. 
I mean, everyone knows this. Everyone has had some contact with some kind of relationship like this where you're just passing favors back and forth. That's obviously what's happening here. Well, uh, that's, ob think, that's obviously what is alleged. That's, that's what's here. alleged. But again, to prove a quid pro quo, you have to have evidence. I mean, but it's not a it's not a quid pro quo, and it's designed to you know when it happens, it's designed to sort of you know just skirt the edge of respectability. Now, now, and and so I think Mueller's definition, it, you just never. It, 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 I think a lot of I think a lot of bad things could have happened that amount to coordination between Trump and the Russians, and would still fall short of of, of Mueller's of what of what of Mueller's definition of conspiracy, fall well short of it. Uh, and I think there's a lot of evidence of that kind of sketchy, soft, quid pro quo, back and forth, where both parties know exactly what's going like on. What? Like I've what? Seen it, like what? Like what? Like everything we've been talking about with the Manafort and Kalimnik thing. This is why the question of whether Kalimnik, it's good we started with it. This is why the question of whether Kalimnik is or isn't a Russian intelligence agent, whether that is or isn't, is, is a, it's a really crucial importance because... And I think we disagree on this, but I would say if he is, uh, that would get you, you know, coordination. More or less. Yes, it yeah. would if it were true. But this is my whole point. If you're going to reach a conclusion that there is something there, but yet everything is qualified with an if or something is likely or it's possible, then you can't make that conclusion. Then it's an if true. But that's different than this being damning or, or so evidence of anything. In terms of being an intelligence agent, I wouldn't say that this report contains proof that that's true. I would say the evidence, you know, both over and under redactions in this report, and the fact that that's the stated conclusion and the number of eyes that were on this evidence, the fact that this report exists and states that makes it more likely that that's true than it was prior to the publication of this report. No, I, <laughs> no. I, think, so I think by these standards, by these standards, anybody who comes up with any theory or interpretation about anything, then that theory or, 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 inter or interpretation then is deemed to be correct unless it can be disproven. That's not how it works or plausible. It's not how it works. If you're going to make a, if you're going to make a crazy, if you're going to make an allegation, you have to prove it. Where are you getting anybody from? This is the Senate Intelligence Committee. This is this is not anybody. This is it's not just. This isn't just the dossier. This isn't just a random slam book. They put their names on this, and they—they're saying it's true. I get. Now, I, I don't. That, I don't grant that, them the weight. Okay. I don't grant them the respect and the authority that, that I guess you do. If you're going to make an allegation, especially if you're in the government, because we don't live in a totalitarian society where we just believe. I'm not saying that makes it true. I'm saying it makes it more likely that it's true. All right. Well, look. I think that is a good way for us to wrap because I yeah. I, 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 I fundamentally disagree with that. I, I think that you know if you're going to make an explosive allegation. There should be evidence for it, period. And I, you know, look, it's um, uh, anybody in any uh, government position can come up with an allegation. And they have in this case, and in the case of the Russian investigation, and I'm surprised that this doesn't raise more eyebrows. There was so much information that was leaked that was false. For example, I talked earlier about that story about the Russian intelligence officers speaking to Trump officials. That was false. Jim Comey denied it. Um, the reporter who reported it, Mike Schmidt, his new book, doesn't even mention it, which I think is pretty curious. I'm looking, yeah, I'm looking at that story now, and I, the lead is I'm like. So yeah, when you have so so, what is interesting is that even though you have these leaks coming out in one direction, 
that are painting a sinister picture of Trump and Russia that is false, as of this story here. No, you know, very few people have said, hmm, well, if they're wrong about that, then what else are they wrong about? And also, why are they leaking this false information? Is it possible that what they're actually doing is feeding us uh, disinformation on purpose because they want to portray, they, they want to paint a picture of a narrative that is simply not true? So, but, but wait, what's what's the Senate Intelligence Committee put out there that's that's demonstrably false in the past? Not the New York Times, the Senate Intelligence Committee. That's what we're talking about here. Well, I'm saying that the Senate Intelligence Committee is picking up an investigation that was fueled by people who leaked false information. And given the preponderance of false information, all the retracted bombshells, you have to wonder, you have to at least, that has to at least raise questions about the sincerity and the accuracy of the people who have been conducting the investigation and have been fueling it. And, and, and accordingly, everything that comes out about the, this investigation should be treated with a very high standard of evidence because you're making serious allegations that someone is a Russian intelligence officer or uh, someone is compromised. If you're going to make a serious allegation like that, it requires serious evidence. That's my only point. Wait, how do we know this story isn't? This story came out in February 2017. How do we know that this isn't about the Flynn calls, the Flynn Kiss the Act calls? I'm looking at this, the, this story that, that you know, you're talking about. Because that would make it, because it, 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 it is true of the Flynn Kislyak calls. There were repeated contacts, uh, you know, between members of the campaign, Flynn, and senior Russian intelligence officials in the year before the election. That's come out in the Flynn Kislyak transcripts. This story came out on February 14, which is, uh, I think, when all that, no, when all the Flynn no, stuff no, was no, still. No. The, the, okay. the, the Flynn Kislyak contacts were after the election. That was during the transition. Oh, no, 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 no. They, they go back to 16 in the in the transcripts. The key one was after the election. That's right. But they were talking. I mean, he they, they, there are there's 34 pages released by ODNI or something, and they go back to, to, to 2016. He makes a couple phone calls about to express his uh, uh, condolences for for deaths. And maybe those aren't the calls. That's that during the yeah. That, that's during the transition. The look. If you read this article. Look, look, if you read this article, yeah. it's about it's about intercepted contacts no, no, no. between Trump associates and Russian intelligence officials. And look, Jim Comey himself said it was not true. He, he said this in Congress. He was asked about it in Congress and he said it was not true. And we recently got these notes released from Peter Strzok, who at the time uh, it was recently declassified. Peter Strzok, who was then who was then leading the Russia investigation for the FBI, Struck personal. He printed out this article and he annotated it, and he even wrote that this was just not true. So nobody stands behind that story now, and that's why I'm saying that Mike Schmidt. It's interesting. Mike Schmidt, who was the lead reporter on that story, he's just come out with his book about the Russia investigation. He doesn't even mention it, which to me is, I think, a pretty strong sign that he no longer stands behind it. Well, if the, if the Times didn't, I mean, again, I don't want to. He Sch, Schmidt. I, I've never. Met him or spoken to him. He's also technically my colleague, as, as you said, I'm a contributor at the Times Magazine. So I'm sort of constrained in my ability to talk too much smack about him. But we have to, the Times does, if the Times didn't stand behind this story, they would run a correction and they haven't. Well, so, I, I think. Uh, I, I get what you're I, saying about I, not. Well, disagree on the Times editorial standards. I understand you work for them. I understand it's a prestigious uh, publication that has done 
you know. But the assumption is that they do stand behind everything, or that we stand behind everything that's up that doesn't have a correction, right? I mean, that's the, 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 the yes, yes, that is the, the assumption. Default. Yes, and what I'm saying is that is not to me borne out uh, by the facts in this case. I, I think if they had, I think they should retract it, uh, given how 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 seriously it's been refuted but look we don't have to argue about that because yeah i think honestly i i wish <laughs> it seems like i'm di- I, I i haven't gone deep on this story and i can tell that you have and i do see that, that like i understand what you're saying about it and i can't I, I i just don't have what i need to uh to you know have a, a robust debate about it because i haven't it's just it's just not something that it's something that you've been tracking and I haven't which isn't to say it's not important it does seem really important and I'm going to read more about it after we get off well uh, that sounds like a good place to leave it because we've spoken for yeah. for over an hour an hour and, and I, <laughs> yeah, I and uh, and I appreciate uh, your time um, certainly there is a lot to read and I have spent a lot of time <laughs> reading stuff and, and writing about it for the last few years and there's more to come because we still have the uh, Durham investigation uh, uh, still to come. So uh, I'll give you the last word and then we'll wrap. Um, yeah, I'm not, uh, let's see, I'm, uh, the last word. Uh, <laughs> I think I said what I wanted my last word to be would have been that thing about the matrix of things. Um, but uh, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else I could. Oh, yeah, I mean, just, uh, oh, yeah, so I have the last word. Okay, sorry. Um, so, like, just to, like, sort of, you know, to put a fine point on it or sum things up. I think one problem, like when we talk about Russiagate is we're talking about, you know, 50 different things. It, it, it's all these little subplots and, and they're all proven or, or not proven to like various degrees. And I think they, they, they sort of add up to five big things. Uh, you know, one, uh, and these are, you know, I'm just talking about this as allegations for now and then I'll give you my opinion at the end. Um, one would be that Russia interfered in the 2016 election. Uh, that's got two components, as we talked about, the social media and the, um, you know, the hack and leak. Uh, two would be that that Russian interference favored Trump. These are escalating. Three would be that that Russian interference that favored Trump was significant enough to potentially swing the election, uh, which that starts to raise questions about Trump's legitimacy, if you admit that that's true. Um, Four would be that there was coordination or, or conspiracy or collusion or cahoots. Um, and five would be that there's something really sketchy going on and Trump is beholden to Russia for some dark, mysterious reason, which, which a lot of people hold that to be true. Uh, and I am willing to get behind the first four, actually, um, with a footnote on decisive. I think if the Russian interference was probably decisive, but there were probably you know, nine or 10 other factors that would have been more decisive that also swung the election because it was so close. Like the um, Comey emails and the, uh, the Comey statements about the Clinton emails and, and Clinton not campaigning at the home stretch, any number of things. Um, but I, I think four out of five have, you know, and, I, and you and I disagree vigorously about the fourth. Um, so I, I sort of feel like, you know, people are like, Oh, Russiagate, it's a hoax. Russiagate, lots of BS. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that has alleged, has been alleged, it turned out to be more or less BS, like the P-tape and the Alpha Bank stuff. But I think people, I think the narrative is sort of, and this is what the Sissy Report drove home for me, it's kind of missed how much stuff has gotten back then. So 
Um, so you you probably maybe agree with the one, one the very first one or the second one, but but um, anyway. No, I I agree with none of them. I agree with that. It's proven that again that the Russian that a Russian social media firm, which by the way Mueller acknowledged he had no evidence uh, that the firm had any tie to the Russia government. I I agree that that firm put some stupid memes on social media. And I agree that there is something serious when it comes to the stolen email. Someone stole them and it might have been Russia. I just don't think that it's, I don't think it's been proven it's been Russia. And I, I, and I think the case against Russia, that it was Russia, has many holes, including, by the way, I should have mentioned it earlier, the fact that CrowdStrike CEO Sean Henry admitted uh, under oath in 2017, in December 2017, but we only learned this just recently, he admitted that actually CrowdStrike had no evidence that these alleged Russian hackers actually exfiltrated anything from the server. And that is curious because CrowdStrike is the firm that generated the initial allegation against Russia accusing it of the DNC hacking. I think that's one of many examples, but an important one where an explosive claim is made, but then in this case, years later, evidence comes out that undermines the the claim or at least the maximalist interpretation. So. Yeah, and it's, I'm, I'm going to back you up a little bit on this point, which is that in the Sissy report, everything that they said, everything that they cited to support the thesis that the GRU was behind the hacking came from Mueller indictments and CrowdStrike and Crowd and CrowdStrike and CrowdStrike. But it's a pretty weak, you know, the the Navalny, which is, that's a pretty that's a weaker thing to lean on because an indictment is just an allegation, obviously. Um, but uh, but the yeah, I mean the 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 WikiLeaks Russia side of it, or the I'm sorry, the the hacking connecting that back to Russia, it's a pretty complicated, forensic, dicier thing, you know. Um, it, it is, and they might be true, they might be accurate, but I just think, first of all, I think we should see the underlying intelligence that they relied on, because especially I don't know to what extent they used CrowdStrike and what they didn't. Obviously, they have something more than CrowdStrike because. They talk about things that CrowdStrike didn't. So there is obviously more than just CrowdStrike. But I, I was corresponding with some of the DC Leaks people, you know, trying to figure out who they were at the time. Hmm. And I mean, someone was on someone was on the other side writing these emails, yeah. you know, some, yeah. someone was doing this. You know? yeah. Somebody was. Yeah. Somebody was behind the theft of these emails. And I've never advocated one theory that it was an internal insider who leaked it. I have no idea. And I've seen. You know, there's there have been people who have argued that and they argue that the speed of the transfer rate shows it was copied. I personally don't find that as convincing as some people do. But I just resist adopting Mueller's narrative on faith, especially when I look at this case and I see a lot of things that intelligence officials have gotten wrong. So listen, I promise you the last word. So let me give. Oh, I actually have a, I, I have a last okay, word. Okay, please. Right? Yes. And I think it, it, it won't. <laughs> I, so too, yeah, too much stuff is classified, and this is a national security crisis because uh, you know I've enjoyed this debate immensely, and I don't think we, as like the people of the United States, have like the tools that we need to settle debates like this once and for all, and that is really problematic. That's like to me, that's like a crisis, and this logic that. Um, that we can't let the people know because then our adversaries will know. I mean, are you really going to let the whole country basically like burn to the ground in partisan warfare because they can't agree whether the leader of their country is like a Manchurian candidate or not just to die on that hill 
of like, we can't let anyone know because then everybody knows. I, you know, I think the courts are one way that you could get around this. I think there's a lot of ways to get around this. The Intelligence Committee is like a flawed way of getting around this. But it's clear that we've got to, uh, there's got to be more auditing of these like fundamental historical claims about WTF is going on. You know, I don't know how to do that, but it's a real, it's a real problem. And I think, I think we can agree on that one. We do. I, I would love it if all the underlying intelligence could be released so people could judge for themselves. And especially given how much has been known already and the allegations that have been made, especially on the email hacking, I would think that they would be a way to do it without compromising sources and methods, as they say. But, you know, we did with at a flight in Korea, you know, for example. Yeah. 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 All right. Well. Ending a debate on a point of agreement is a is a great place to do it. And I, and uh, Matatia Schwartz, I really appreciate your time, Matatia oh, Schwartz. This was a lot. This was a lot of fun, and I, I'm really glad that we did it. It's nice to uh, to re-civilize after some 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 Twitter exchanges, and I look forward to more. <laughs> Twitter is conducive to uh, to uncivilized exchanges, and having to confront someone, having to having to speak to someone, uh, you know, in person, always or generally leads to more civil discussion. Uh, Matatia Schwartz, thanks very much. Great. No, thank you, Aaron. Have a good night.